Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called Big Brother is Watching and Listening. It was written by Waikato Times reporter Richard Walker, who is under level three restrictions in Hamilton, but joins me now by phone. Hey Richard. G'day, how are you? I'm good. Uh, Tell us about this story. It's a first person story and it's based on a personal experience. So uh, tell us how it came about. Yeah, yeah. Um... A bit of a surprise discovery, this one. Um, finally became the owner of a car that actually had a dash cam. And, you know, the supposed advantage of them is they're recording what's happening in front of you. So if you're in an accident, you've got a record of it on an SD card so you can show your insurance company, apparently. So eventually um, my wife and I took the SD card out, you know, to check that it was working and so forth, put it into our laptop and it was working, and there was all sorts of clips going back several years. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise. But the biggest surprise of all was that there was this incredibly clear audio, and, and it was a surprise to everyone we spoke to. So that that became the, the catalyst, really, for the story, sort of contemplating the ways in which the privacy that we think we have, um, we may not have. So this experience was a stepping off point for the wider story we're about to hear, which is about privacy and our right to privacy. Just elaborate a bit on that. So we were sort of thinking about the ways in which our own privacy had been sort of unexpectedly intruded on, and that was another major one. And so I just wanted to um, get a sense of the places in which our privacy can be um, impinged on. So I spoke to a couple of experts, you know, about some of those areas of our lives that are getting intruded on and and realised that one of the um, big ones is probably facial recognition, um, which could be getting used in a supermarket near you, could be getting used in a warehouse near you. And, and it sort of begs the question with some of this AI facial recognition data approach to things of... Um, partly how widespread it is, how long it's been um, retained and what uses it's been put to. Thanks, Richard. Let's go answer that question. Here is me reading Richard's story, Big Brother is Watching and Listening. I'm not paranoid, but I think they might be watching me, or at least listening. When our household bought a second car recently, It was the first time we'd owned one with a dash cam. The dealer explained its value in case of an accident, with everything recorded on its SD card, an insurance claim would be a piece of cake. A few weeks later, we remembered the SD card and plugged it into our laptop to check it was working. Sure enough, we could see a video recording of our last drive, divided into two-minute clips, and the three drives before that, And, surprisingly, some before we possessed the car, going all the way back to Japan. We could even see the moment when the car drove off the ship in Auckland. According to the lettering painted on the docked ship's hull, the car arrived courtesy of the Valenius Wilhelmsen line. The card also had a folder with seemingly random two-minute clips 
taken after the car had been parked. On one of them, we could see two people, presumably prospective buyers, opening the bonnet to see what was underneath. Here's the thing, though. Their voices came through loud and clear as they discussed how to pop the bonnet. And we came through loud and clear when driving. My exchange with my mother as I dropped her home on one trip was preserved in startling clarity. So was my conversation with my son as we ran some errands. So were earlier conversations held in Japan. The dash cam which we'd assumed was only taking video of the road ahead, was also collecting audio from the cabin. It felt insidious. Fleet vehicles come in a whole new light when you realise the audio capacity of dash cams. Digital tech and privacy expert Andrew Chen of Koi2, the Centre for Informed Futures, has his own story to add of unexpected monitoring. My one, he says, was when I found out that if you're on hold on the phone to a company and they record the calls for quality assurance and training purposes, they actually record the whole part where you're on hold as well. You know, that's the time when people think, I'm not being recorded, this is where I'll swear about the terrible company and the terrible service that I'm getting. And they've got all of it. I was really surprised when I heard about that. The digital world may have opened up an array of connection and convenience, but it also ushers in seemingly endless ways in which our privacy might be eroded, from a dealer's dashcam oversight to the spread of facial recognition technology, from data sharing across platforms and devices to the ever-present danger of being hacked. Are we sleepwalking into a surveillance society? Andrew Chen points out that facial recognition technology is readily available. He's been helping police work out procedures around its use. Cameras with the capability can be bought off the shelf. Newer iPhones can be unlocked using facial recognition, and some smart doorbells might also use it. The technology is widely available, Chen says, but I wouldn't say that it's commonplace right now. The software is being trialled at Wellington Airport by Aviation Security to distinguish airport staff from passengers in the security area. Chen is relaxed about that, partly because the monitoring is clearly signposted and because each passenger's digital record is deleted as soon as they leave the queue. If you wanted to go into the security area, Chen says, you pretty much had to see that there was a sign there saying We're running a facial recognition trial. This is what it's for. This is how it works. If you want more information, go to this website. Anyone using such biometrics has to comply with the Privacy Act. But Chen says penalties or enforcement would only kick in if there's a particularly egregious use, like a company using it without notifying its customers that they were doing so and linking it to a loyalty system. That would probably be a substantial breach, Chen says. 
where the customers have no idea that this is happening. Supermarkets using the technology to combat shoplifting might be less problematic, though Chen notes that the argument that unhappy customers can always choose to shop somewhere else doesn't stack up as the use of the technology becomes more widespread. At the point where you've got it in supermarkets, everybody's got to be able to buy food, so you're impacting all people at that point, he says. How did we allow it to become so pervasive? Chen says, let's say you've got a business who says, we think that having some facial recognition in this setting might be a good idea. Do we need to poll our stakeholders? Do we need to talk to our customers? Nah, we'll just do it. Even if they do engage, do the customers say that they care? Most of them probably don't. Let's say you had a consultation survey. Most of your customers probably wouldn't even reply. And so it gives the businesses, in some sense, license to go ahead and do this stuff. We've kind of tacitly given them permission over time, and it's just slowly eroded away our objections until it becomes the new norm. So if people are worried about it, then they need to go try and shift that norm back to where it was. Privacy Foundation Chair Gerhan Gunasekera uses the term mission creep. Ordinary CCTV cameras need a human to make assessments, and the record is not permanent. That's different from facial recognition cameras, with AI making decisions about people and creating a more permanent record. If left unregulated, he says privacy will be eroded by attrition. Over a period of time, Gunasekera says, you will get mission creep. You'll get more and more facial recognition cameras in place, eventually the potential for them all to be connected up, and then you suddenly end up living in a surveillance society before you even know about it. So it's not a conscious decision that somebody has made, but it just happens. This veers eerily close to George Orwell's novel 1984, in which citizens are under constant watch by the all-knowing Big Brother. Gunasekera, who's also an associate professor at Auckland University, would like a specific standalone law regulating facial recognition. Under existing privacy law, an organisation has to be sure information is accurate before using it, so a company incorrectly screening a shoplifter could run into trouble. But Gunasekera wants the law to go further. Examples would be requiring privacy impact assessments, consideration of whether children would be affected, and weighing up the potential bias in an algorithm. He says it wouldn't be difficult, with the Privacy Act allowing for sector-specific codes of practice. Andrew Chen is most concerned about the government's powers against an individual, saying there's a more limited range of consequences from corporates possessing a person's facial data. The government has more powers against an individual, he says, so we should be more careful about how they might collect and use facial data, for example. It 
was a hell of a slog, but you've made it. You've bought your first home. Congratulations. Now what? If you're feeling nervous about doing DIY on your biggest investment yet, or you're struggling to think of ways to add value to your new home, then join me, Joe Davis, and me, Kylie Klein-Nixon, for First Rung Reno 101, a stuff-homed podcast about owning and doing up your own home, brought to you with support from Resine. Strap on your tool belt and find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find good podcasts. When it comes to being monitored, do our devices or apps on them listen to us? Harvest the information and feed it to advertisers, as some people believe? An adult son staying with us after the first lockdown last year was interested, who wasn't, in making sourdough bread. We had a recipe from another family member, and, after some discussion, our son got a starter going. That's when the ads started. Maybe it was coincidental. Maybe so many people were starting sourdough that everyone's Facebook feed was full of ads. Maybe. But the same son wanted to extend his guitar repertoire and YouTubed some lessons using his laptop. Cue ads for the same guitar lessons on our Facebook feed, on our laptop. This time, we knew we hadn't talked about it, and certainly hadn't ourselves searched for anything remotely similar. We theorised it must be happening courtesy of the shared household modem. Although each of us was using separate devices wirelessly, somehow all that information being fed through our modem was being collectivised and used. The thought that our separate devices could be linked in this way was unsettling. Privacy is pretty much out the window when your browsing can manifest itself on someone else's device, unbeknownst to you. Browsing incognito could be a fix, though you then lose the convenience of your browsing history. Plus, it feels weird, like you've got something to hide. That's the interesting thing about diminished privacy. Most of us probably don't have much to hide most of the time. If you're clean, you've got nothing to worry about, right? But privacy is also, itself, a desirable state. A kind of freedom. Chen debunks our modem theory, though we were right in principle. It seems our various devices' IP addresses are the more likely vectors, allowing the mega-platforms to home in on our location and even work out potential relations to each other. Chen also debunks the idea that your phone is listening to you and sending data to potential advertisers, though with an equivocation. It's very unlikely that that is happening, he says. No one can say for certain, but it is very unlikely that it's happening. It's more likely to be confirmation bias, that you've seen an ad in the past as well, but haven't noticed it until it relates to something you've talked about. It's not that they're recording your voice all the time and sending samples back to the advertising agencies, Chen says. I think that is, for now, still reasonably impractical. What clearly do exist, though, despite their invisibility, are the hackers. Cybersecurity expert Bradley Whittle of DI Solutions 
says his industry is booming, possibly amplified by the economic impact of COVID-19, with more people trying to steal information at what he describes as the beginner level. So-called script kiddies, for example, buy the software and a how-to book and try their luck. Whittle is a certified ethical hacker, which means he knows the workings of the dark web, where stolen digital information is routinely traded. Ransomware, like the Waikato District Health Board attack this year, is one thing. But sometimes it's as simple as hacking into a phone, gathering its contacts, building up a database of numbers, and then selling them to scam centres. That's a billion-dollar industry, he says. A lot of the time, people think it's not going to happen to them, until it happens. And some may never realise they've fallen victim. Whittle says US stats show 70% of all small to medium businesses have already been hacked and don't know about it. If the hackers really want to get in, he says, they'll get in. It's just a matter of when. On the other hand, if they come across someone with an extra layer of security, like two-factor authentication, they're likely to move on in search of easier targets. One of the problems Whittle sees is people who use the same password for different applications. The risk there is someone getting access to your Facebook account can use the same password to access a range of other accounts, like your email, steal information, and cause mayhem. The solution is to have a different password for every application. Whittle recommends using a password manager, which locks passwords behind a master password, which is the only one you need to remember. The master password is linked to a device-specific address, creating a barrier to any attempt to log in from a different device. It's a reassuring thread to hold on to, in what can sometimes feel like the Wild West. There's theft, and then there's theft. When it comes to the behemoths, the Facebooks and Googles, Gerhard Gunasekera doesn't pull his punches. In my opinion, he says, not to put too fine a point on it, they've stolen people's data. The consent that you give is fictitious, because even if you read the thousands of terms and conditions, you probably won't be able to figure out what they mean and it's written in a way that's deliberately confusing. Gunasekara sees two fictions. The first being that people have to give their data in order to receive the free service. That's not really true, he says, because the service they're really providing is to advertisers. The second fiction is that users consent to their data being collected through terms and conditions. Those terms and conditions aren't worth the paper they're written on, he says. There are cases around the world where they've been struck out. They certainly don't override privacy laws. There are obvious harms from the use of data, he says. While there has been news coverage recently of the vulnerability of young people to social media, he believes the elderly are also at risk, and those with medical conditions relying on what could be faulty information. 
Gunasekara sees a similar hazard around people sending their DNA to overseas companies in pursuit of their ancestry. The DNA testing companies, he says, are a huge problem because they're hard to regulate. In reality, they're gathering the DNA to carry out medical research, he says, potentially to generate billions of dollars through developing new pharmaceuticals or DNA therapies. There may well be beneficial things to come out of it, he says, but the fact is they wouldn't have that DNA unless the individuals had given it to them. The issue for the individual is, while you can change your identity, you can't change your DNA. For those who shrug their shoulders over law enforcement using DNA to catch criminals, he warns inaccurate DNA analysis could present problems for anyone. So people need to be wary about those things. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line no, there. No, that, I think Chris, that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah I'm not worried about it at all. That's Nothing a fair there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Who'll be the law? Like Chen, Gunasekara notes the ubiquity of data-driven technologies. If you want to participate in the modern world, he says, you just have to accept that there's going to be a lot of data that you're giving up. My take on that is we need good regulators. We need good privacy enforcers to monitor situations where people might find something is a little unexpected or something beyond what most people would find reasonable. He says every business should have a privacy impact assessment, which they review as new products are added, a bit like a health and safety assessment. Privacy by design should be embedded in law, so the default setting on new technologies is that they don't collect information, or if information is being collected, there are clear signposts for consumers to protect themselves. You can't expect people to do their own detective work, Gunasekara says, because a lot of people won't have the knowledge to do that. Products need to be made for dumb people. Rather than having the onus on the individual to protect themselves, the companies need to be proactively taking steps to protect them. New Zealand's privacy legislation, in Chen's view, has insufficient consequences for lower-end breaches, and needs updating for a range of newer technologies. And, he says, the government has a huge role to play in protecting New Zealanders when it comes to the use of their data. There's significant challenges with getting our government, and any other government, to have the capacity to understand these issues and know what the appropriate mitigations are. And it's not sufficiently funded. If you don't appropriately fund the problem, it's not going to get the level of attention or importance that is needed to address it. Then you get to Mark Zuckerberg's creepy metaverse. A corporate vision of the world in which the physical and virtual are pretty much fused. 
a step short of that, Gunasekura talks about the digitization of society. The mega tech companies want to create a digital equivalent of the real world, he says. It's to create a digital twin of the entire world. And once you have that, the digital world is more easily controllable than the physical world. This involves a wealth of knowledge about people's and customers' movements and habits. A map that he describes as the perfect global surveillance mechanism. That raises questions about data sovereignty. Gunasekura says in New Zealand, the government's digital strategy, driven with relentless passion by the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment, similarly involves the idea of digital twins for businesses. In farming, for instance, Gunasekura talks about technologies enabling companies to map every blade of grass and every cow, driving efficiencies. But who's providing these services, he says? And once these companies know all the tricks of the trade and all the secrets that make New Zealand farming state-of-the-art, who owns that? We have to be absolutely clear that we are still the owners of that digital economy. I'm not clear that we will still be the owners of that. I'm quite concerned that the Googles, the Amazons, once they have the blueprint for our digital economy... They might even start charging us a fee. They might say, okay, thank you very much. We've mapped it all for you now, but if you want to continue using it, you have to pay us a license because we are the owners of it. Faced with that prospect, Gunasekura believes intellectual property laws and others need to be reviewed to see if they're fit for purpose. He's concerned the same thing will happen in other areas that have happened in his area of expertise, privacy. The reason we ended up in this mess with the Facebooks and the Googles and everything else, he says, is we didn't design privacy laws around those kind of techniques or technologies. And so we allowed a free-for-all. And once these companies had the information, now we're trying to figure out what we can do about it. I'm still unsure when I let Siri loose on my phone. It was a new phone that came with the job, and the first time I'd had an Apple rather than an Android. I was all thumbs, with nothing quite the way it used to be. There was a home Wi-Fi connection to establish, apps to re-download, a search engine to get used to, a decision to make around fingerprint recognition, a barrage of unwelcome prompts relating to Apple TV. You can feel your age at times like that. And there was Siri. I've never used a voice-activated app and never planned to, though I can see their value for people with disabilities. Siri was a thing I'd heard of, but that was about it. But then it seemed to be popping up with suggestions from time to time. I checked, and sure enough, Siri had been on the whole time. 
I'm not paranoid, but I think they might be watching me. That was Big Brother is Watching and Listening on The Long Read from Stuff, written by Richard Walker and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.